Welcome to the Mastering the Mind podcast, where we take you through professional elite athletes and coaches' stories about how they cope with the psychological demands of competing at elite level. Today, we welcome ex-professional British fencer Lawrence Halstead to the podcast. Lawrence has competed at both the London 2012 and Rio 2016 Olympics in both the individual and team foil events. Some of Lawrence's major accomplishments have been being British champion in 2010, coming 15th in the world rankings, achieving a senior European silver and bronze medal from in the season 2009 to 2010 period, coming sixth in the world championships in 2015. Since retiring, Lawrence has been the performance director for the Danish Fencing Federation since 2017. Lawrence is also the author of a book called Becoming a True Athlete, A Practical Philosophy for Flourishing Through Sport, which is recently published. So let's welcome Lawrence to the podcast. Hello, hello. Hello, guys. How are you? Very good, thanks. I just packed off my son with his grandmother for a walk, so we don't have a crying one-year-old in the background. <laughs> yeah, congratulations, actually, on the, uh, on the newborn. Well, no, he's one years old. I've been oh, taking paternity old. with him on the other end of the yeah. kind of his first year. Uh, oh, okay, okay. How's that been? How's that experience yeah. been? It's lovely. It's a really, it's it's a really special time to connect after he's gone through the kind of baby phase where he's only about the mum. Then yeah. she goes back to work, and I can get some real solid time with him. So it's it's a special time. Yeah, definitely. I love that. A lot of people normally at this point have got that uh, outlook where, you know, they're very sleep deprived and things like that. So it's good that you have that positive outlook. Oh, I'm <laughs> also sleep deprived <laughs> and yeah. all the rest of it. And very happy to be going back to work as well. So okay. that's yeah. nice too. Yeah. Just, yeah. You, I can appreciate both sides. Have you missed work a lot? Has that been like a huge... Uh... You know, has that been difficult for you to, to come no, out of it? No, not at all. It's, a, <laughs> it's actually quite nice to be forced into kind of just a different rhythm of life. And I, I've done, I did it with my, my daughter, who's three now. But yeah, there's a just being a, having to take on a, a new gear, a slower gear is just really good. And I, it's perfectly fine with me. I'm not the... I'm not the super driven type that has to be kind of busy and pressured all the time to enjoy life I, I can definitely take it easy okay so a great place we like to start podcasts and for the listeners to sort of get to know you is you know if you talk us through your journey today like in a brief overview so like who is Lawrence Halstead from when you was growing up to where you are now who is Lawrence Halstead yeah okay um well I grew up into an Olympic family I guess both my parents were Olympic fencers before me. Um, so we had kind of the whole house was a, a shrine to the Olympics and to fencing itself, kind of swords all over the place, trophies and photos from there, from my parents' Olympics. And um, an older brother and older sister who were, I'd say, let's, let's say, challenged me every day. Um, and there's a common, common thread, right, for, for elite athletes that they've had older siblings that have, they've kind of had to keep up with and that's definitely part of my story so I played all kind of sports loved everything about sport didn't really appreciate school except for the the PE lessons um so kind of did everything a lot of rugby played played county level rugby up until I was 18 
uh, alongside when I was fencing kind of from, from a young age as well. And at that point kind of had to make a decision between rugby and fencing. I was just a, a better fencer and doing pretty well at the junior level. Um, I wasn't a particularly brilliant kind of youth fencer before that. It was only around 17, 18 that it started clicking that I was, I could, I could do better than most of the people around me. But, but uh, yeah, before that I was, didn't, I didn't seem to be anything special. Um, and had one, actually still one of the highlights of my sporting life was that a junior European championships that I won. And the reason I've had better results since then, the senior level, but the reason is it was such a surprise. And it's like some of those, we know the kind of the feeling of winning often subsides really quickly, right? And especially for those right at the top of their game, they just kind of have to refocus, move on. But there are some times when the feeling of winning is everything that it's cracked up to be. And that was absolutely one of those times. It was just an absolute shock. First, my first ever even decent international result. And, and I won a, a competition three years earlier than, than a lot of the competitors. And I was in the final against my teammate. And uh, we, uh, we had a lot of fun that night. So that that still sticks out as a as a kind of a highlight and also one of those kind of messages that was sent like okay this is something you could you could be quite good at but i i went to university and competed in my first year of university still on the international scene i went to sussex uni which is just an amazing place to be and then i stopped i, I took a couple of years off from fencing to to I won't say just to study, but just to be a more part of the, the university life. Yeah. Um, picked up rugby again, played in the university team for, the, for those two years. So that's a slightly unusual part of my journey and actually comes back again a bit later that I, that was my first two senior years. So I was 20, 20, 21. And I, I, that was when I took a break. And traditionally those kind of transition from junior to seniors is really tough. And I even didn't even do it. I didn't do it at the beginning. I just, I took those years off, but I kind of see that as a, that was also a part of one of my strengths was that sport was, and well, fencing wasn't the only part of me. So that was really kind of buying into that, that I had other parts of my life and had an amazing experience in, in those two years at uni. Um, got very lucky that when I graduated, I didn't know really what I was going to do. I had a degree in psychology, actually, social psychology. But I didn't, I wasn't going to be a psychologist and I didn't have a clue, really. And we got funding from for the London Olympics. For the first time, you could be a professional fencer in the UK. So I was still able, I was basically able just to kind of take up that offer. Like, there you go, there's a contract, not a huge amount of money in the UK sport system for young fences, but I could be a full-time fencer. And that was just amazing. And that set off the, I mean, that, that set off everything else that kind of led on from there. So I could be a full-time athlete for the next 10 years, basically. Um, spent six years, yeah, six years roughly working towards the London Olympics. And that year, the that 2012 year didn't quite go to plan. I'd, first year, first training session back, in 2012, I was kind of, I'd always been number two, I'd say number two in, in the British ranking, kind of a surefire for the team. We had a quota place for our team in the Olympics. 
But uh, at that first training session back, I fell over in training and broke my my wrist on my sword arm. So went into four months of no training, no technical training, uh, two surgeries. So that was January till May. And we had our Olympic selection in June. And obviously I had this, by the end of it, I had this withered sword arm that I had to train back up within a month, basically a month and a half to to Olympic standard. And I didn't, I didn't get back to where I didn't get selected for the individual, but I was selected for our team event. And uh, so it wasn't quite what I'd hoped for, but I still got that, got that experience and competed in London, but it was an incredibly stressful year and just full of emotions. Also the, the place that kind of sowed a lot of seeds for what I was for my philosophy right now. So I did a lot of work on, on values, on my values, how I wanted to be. It was kind of, it was a dark period with a lot of resentment and bitterness about kind of why me, kind of poor me kind of thing, looking at my teammates who were training fine. And I worked with a particularly great sports psychologist in that year, Katie Warriner, who kind of the work we did then just set the scene and allowed me to, to come back and have a really positive experience in the Olympics even though it was, it was far from what I was, what I'd been dreaming of for my whole life. Um, so that was a really pivotal kind of moment and message kind of message that resonates still, which is even in those super dark times, the, the darkest period of my sporting career, without doubt was sown the seeds of so much, so much great stuff that would come afterwards. Um, and then I took a year off after the London Olympics again this kind of back to that message of it wasn't sport wasn't the only thing that defined me and i went traveling for a year uh partly it was because of the that kind of stress of that year it probably would have been a shorter break and come back to it but i needed a i needed to re kind of reevaluate things mm. um went to went to all sorts of places around the world one of them was copenhagen where i met my now wife and decided just to to stay there or at least kind of just book my flight back to Copenhagen at the end of my year and and never moved home and I actually I took another year off from fencing after that I just didn't feel like training I didn't feel like competing anymore I was still training for fun and then 2014 I saw I was watching my teammates still going pretty well but saw that there was a there was maybe an opening for me to to come back and we had a really strong unit so kind of put myself into the running again and quickly got back up to speed and we we ended up qualifying for Rio which was the first time we'd ever qualified a team for for the Olympics from from Great Britain so in London it was a quota a quota place and in Rio it was yeah it was our first the first time that we'd really shown that our team was world class and um so that was a pretty special two years where I felt we'd been competing at the best we'd ever ever been and and I personally, with a com- completely new perspective on on performance from a position of kind of having done this values work and just yeah, we can talk more about it. But just my perspective on performance was just radically different to even four or five years ago, pre London Olympics. Um, and then I yeah, I retired after after Rio and became the performance director for Danish fencing, and that leads us up to just the end of last year and I've just left that role to move into a new position that we'll also probably talk about in the triathlete project. 
Nice, yeah. Thanks uh, so much for uh, sharing that with us. It was a really good overview, and already there's so much to uh, unpack, especially like the things about like the wider identity. Like, there's more things to you than just fencing, and uh, obviously all the Olympics and, and, and things that you've competed in. But I just wanted to take it back to the start. Um, I'm actually the older brother in my family, so I was sort of the one setting pace. Um, I'm interested to know, sort of, what was your mindset around being born into an Olympic family? Um, did you feel pressure um, to perform or to have a successful career in sport? Or did you think it was an advantage um, that you had on other competitors your age? I, I never felt pressure from it. I think my parents did a good job of, they obviously wanted me. They loved the fact that I was a fencer and my brother and sister weren't, they didn't take in, take to it. So I was their last hope, <laughs> but they they managed to keep keep it from me that I, that I, I wouldn't feel any of the pressure of it i actually as soon as i started competing internationally i i stopped traveling with them they they were just not a part of it anymore so i would that was part of my enjoyment of it i would get to go to competitions without them so they they quickly took a back seat they didn't claim that kind of that space in my fencing life that was my coach and my teammates so there was some there was it was it was just a positive i think i it gave me an appreciation for it um knowledge of they spoke they came from a different era where you if you got in the british team you were in the olympic team as well in fencing and like in many sports so they they had a different experience of kind of there was no nowhere near as professional or as hard kind of to qualify for those kind of things and they just have lifelong friends from it they still their, their experience was just a kind of incredibly positive so that's what i soaked up and and then had the advantages they happened to be good friends with the best coach in the country so he was my coach from the beginning so really i had i had the britain's best coach of all time as my coach from the age of seven through to through to the olympics so some some clear advantages came from it yeah. no, it's fantastic yeah really a, a privileged position you had there but um yeah you also mentioned that you studied uh, social psychology at university and i was kind of curious did you were you able to like take any bits from what you learned at university and apply them, you know, yourself to your performance or anything like that, or to make you a better athlete, a better person? No. Time? No? Nothing. nothing. <laughs> I, we actually didn't, amazingly, considering how much of an advocate of psychology and sport I am now, I didn't have much interest in it, even at that kind of, at that age, studying psychology whilst being a reasonably good athlete. And they didn't have, they didn't offer any sports psychology, performance psychology classes in that, in that bachelor's. So I didn't have the mm. chance, but um, I just, it's another kind of fascinating part that, about psychology as well. Somebody who was interested in it and was competing and understood, it opened my mind to the, the power. I mean, I understood, it gave me a, an, a kind of awareness or an appreciation for the value of working on your mind and where it's relevant. Um, but it took some years after that, actually, to really, for it to become, for me to see it from a practical, from a practical level as an athlete. And I worked with some psychologists that I kind of had experience with psychologists that didn't click for me. And that's, there's a really, you guys are, are training sports psychs as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's a really key message in here, I think, for anyone who's training as a sports psych, that you as a person and your personality, your character is incredibly important in this role it doesn't actually matter like how brilliant you are as a psych how much you know if you can't click with the person in front of you and you can't 
like have a rapport and 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 meet them where they are and and lead them with you to that kind of realization then it means nothing and i've really i've experienced that kind of personally i've worked had the opportunity to work with some people who knew everything you could know and it didn't do anything for me and then i've worked closely with a few with quite a few now who are absolutely brilliant and have changed my life really um so it's it's really relevant to probably some of the people listening that that yeah it's not just about what you know but who you are is so key in that in that job yeah we've definitely promoted that kind of message across uh, some podcasts but i was curious to know um what do you kind of look for in the sports psychologist what are the qualities that you kind of look for in the well, so I've had a nice kind of situation where I've been an athlete with some experience of different types of sports psych, and now I've been a performance director where I've hired and worked with sports psychologists. Um, so rapport building, it's absolutely huge. Um, I want to, the, the, the guy, the person that I've worked with most, I kind of, started collaborating with in, in Denmark in the Danish team. He mm. just he just had a way of connecting with young athletes up to the senior level, which I I'd always kind of get feedback from them how the sessions were or what they felt. And everybody really enjoyed the sessions they did with him. And that was and then I would have my own talks with him where I'd kind of I knew that we were aligned on a lot of the the kind of the messaging and the the approach that we wanted. So that idea that people really, that he could open, that he was one of those people that could open people's minds and eyes to the power of doing this kind of stuff and make it relevant and exciting. Um, so that's, that's one of the first things I'd look for. Can they, can they connect with yeah. the person? Yeah. Mm. I was going to cover this later on, but whilst we're on the topic of like specifically psychology, why not cover it now? So <laughs> We're like so, super interested into things like routines, um, whether that's pre-performance routines or your nighttime routine before competition, your morning routine, um, because, you know, a lot of our listeners will be able to take this podcast and, and the information that you share and be able to apply it, even if it's just a, one thing out of that routine to their life and if it clicks with them. So what are sort of your routines before competition from the nighttime to right before you're about to compete? Do you have a specific pre-performance routine? Yeah, and I think that was an, the routines I kind of slowly into, integrated were a pivotal part of my performance stepping up to a really consistent level. I think that's what it is. It's about consistency. I had peaks, but loads of troughs as well throughout my kind of early senior years. And then later on, it was just through having really solid routines that I knew worked that, that made it super consistent not always in results, but in my, my, my mindset, my readiness and all of that. So absolutely key for, for athletes to, to consider. I would have, I think fairly, fairly set routine about how I'd go through the evening before kind of the kind of food I would eat, not too much, not too little, getting everything ready, preparing my kit, taking it easy, not not thinking about the performance for days and any of the days beforehand, really, except for specific moments. So that was a, that was a change that I don't, you don't actually have to think about it at all until the morning of the competition, except for I would do a, a 
kind of video preparation of some of my competitors we'd get a, a list of our pool the night before we could we could see who we were going to compete against in the beginning of the day we had video on everyone so we would watch i'd watch with my coach a video and set a little plan for each person that would be that and then at no other time did i need to think about the day because it's just energy draining basically you can't do any more um I think that's a probably good advice for most people. There's not anything more you can do preparation wise. You, well, you do what you can and then you just take your mind off it because otherwise it, I went through that. It drains you and drains you. And I had years of sleeping horribly because it was just on my, it was whirring through my mind. Probably the last five years of my, my career, I just slept like a baby the night before competitions, even Olympics and world championships. Um, the morning. So I, I made some, kind of significant gains again that work that i did with the with katie in 2012 that was that was a she was kind of working with steve peter's chimp model at the time so that's what we would use so that's the work i did um it was very kind of cbt orientated so responding to thoughts in the moment distracting thoughts that came up i have i had a response to and that would that would form part of my my mental warm-up so, so one of the things I often I tell all the athletes I work with is just like you have a physical warm-up on the day of competition, you should have a mental warm-up. And that for me was kind of a series of steps that included some affirmations, um, some kind of checking in with with my with my values really about my kind of purpose for being there, what I loved about about being there, kind of how it was a, a privilege to be there, the pressure kind of pressure is a privilege kind of principles um this kind of checking in with my monkey and my chimp and and responding to what came up so i'd have that kind of running alongside my physical warm-up and it just it just meant that i was in the same ready place every time i started a competition and it was invaluable absolutely invaluable so and i yeah, there's some interesting stuff around that CBT, CBT approach. I'd probably move, in my personal kind of opinion, move towards the acceptance commitment style of dealing with distractions. But I think there's a place for that CBT responding in the moment. Uh, and for me, it worked incredibly. So after about, I don't know, six months to a year of doing that, my my chimp just settled right down and I just didn't have those thoughts anymore. It just didn't throw that kind of crap at me. So it really, it was really effective. I had much more kind of centered preparation. So there's a lot um, of uh, correlations to other po podcasts that we've done, especially around when you mentioned there's nothing more that you can do the night before. So sort of just take your mind off it and, you know, you've done everything possible. That's been prevalent in a lot of podcasts that we've done recently. So, you know, it's, it's, and you're definitely well knowledgeable on uh, psychology and well-versed. That chimp, is that um, from the book? The Chimp Paradox, because I've got I've got that book. I haven't read it yet. Um, but if it's a good read, then I should definitely give it a give it a read. Yeah, it's as I said, the kind of I think the psych world is moving slowly away from that style of approach. That's yeah, yeah that's based on the CBT style, and um, it's just I found it incredibly effective. So yeah. I'm I think there's a space for it. The way I I think about it now is that. The responding to those thoughts can be really useful in kind of lead up and the night before you kind of you could have some responses if your brain is really going like that then you've got the time and you can it's not it's not 
distracting to focus kind of have a response like that but in the moment of competition or of kind of your performance it can be it's probably more efficient and more effective just to go to switch to an acceptance approach and um it's much quicker there, there's a downside that i've heard about the that kind of responding approach which is you start scanning for distracting thoughts so when they're not there you're you're looking for them and that it can be quite kind of draining to do that um I didn't find that, but but basically that's that's probably not the end of the world if it's the night before, but if it's if it's in performance, then that's not really what you want. So, but yeah, that that model that I, it it made so much sense to me, and especially for a young athlete, that that was my first real like some aha moments about sports psychology. It was just so easy to grasp. You have a, a chimp kind of in your mind. You have a chimp, a computer, and a human, and just how they interact, and the, it just it just made so much sense to me. So it really helped draw, draw me in and then it worked for me. For sure. Um, another one that we like to ask for our listeners um, is what psychological qualities do you feel make a successful fencer or even an athlete in general? So they'll be able to take those psychological qualities and sort of try and develop them in themselves um, in their performances, even in their day-to-day lives. Mm. So as you guys probably know, I, I wrote a book recently based on the, the philosophy that we have in the True Athlete Project. And that book is a, a practical philosophy for athletes. In it, I kind of, the one of the major points is that we have these kind of traditional psychological characteristics of sport that we, everyone knows about, like toughness and teamwork and discipline, those kind of things. And I point to, four others i call them virtues in the book but four other characteristics traits that i think are absolutely essential and that i've lived in my kind of my experience have been pivotal to that that change in perspective that change in performance kind of attitude and so a couple of those these these are different these are these are non-traditional these are not the things that people generally go for so i thought they make sense here so you haven't maybe you haven't heard them before tell me if you have though that'd be cool so compassion is the first one. Self-compassion is probably the biggest game changer for the majority of athletes and especially young athletes. The traditional kind of narrative in sport and kind of sport culture is that you it's good to be critical of yourself, to be hard on yourself. That will drive you to be better. And the best athletes are just super harsh on, their, on themselves in substandard performances. When they lose, they hate it. And that was me for most of my career, certainly as a junior, as a young senior, I was incredibly tough on myself and like, like, like mini depression after every time I lost a competition, which was every, every weekend I would lose. I won very few competitions as a senior. So compassion, the self-compassionate approach is just far more powerful. It says that everyone is human and all humans fail and uh, kind of make mistakes and that it's okay and to treat yourself just like you would your teammate if they were making a mistake you just could be like it's all right mate just carry on this let's just refocus it's basically that being able to do that job for yourself is just the biggest game changer and it frees you up so for me i would have this i knew that if i lost i'd have this big this backlash that was waiting for me at the other end 
so in the performance it was just weighing over me just the anxiety would be heightened because i i knew how horrible it would be and when i was more compassionate to myself none of that was there i was just so much freer in my performance because actually it didn't matter if i lost if i did my best if i stuck to my kind of my values and my game plan as much as possible just gave my full effort then it didn't matter what the result was and that compassionate approach just yeah changed everything for me and it meant that i was in my olympics in my so in rio was the first time i competed as an individual i got off to a horrific start against this chinese opponent and there was nothing there was no fear in there it was purely just like okay we've got to figure this out and i came right back in it i didn't win but there was just i could just sense that this i was able to pull myself back where a younger me would have completely collapsed under just the anger the stress of it and that's just an incredibly powerful kind of moment for me to know that like they really didn't it didn't come even at the the biggest kind of point of pressure so that was the first one <laughs> compassion yeah, yeah no yeah because i've actually seen that before um that that compassion and I think it was from, I forgot the name of the actor, but it was, it's the actor in Prison Break. And he was saying, you know, when I started to talk to myself with that compassion and it, before I'd have, I'd talk to myself. And if I was my friend talking to myself like that, I would never be friends with myself. Um, and when he changed his perspective and started talking to himself like he would his friends, then his whole life changed. Um, so it's interesting that you bring that up and definitely a, a lot of value. And it's something I, I feel like I need to work on as well and apply to my life. I think you're yeah, not alone. I think the majority of people will have a more critical inner voice than they will a compassionate one. Mm. We're just not that used to being kind of loving ourselves in that way and yeah. being compassionate to ourselves. But we're very, very used to doing that for our friends and family. Like that's the immediate response to yeah. friends and family who are suffering but not to ourselves. So it's just a, it's a simple thing, but not simple in practice. 100%. Yeah, definitely. And as psychologists as well, like we, we're constantly giving, you know, guiding athletes, you know, to, you know, to, to kind of perform well and, and we're really promoting, you know, heavy messages on, you know, athlete wellbeing, et cetera. But we often forget that we can apply to what we're actually saying to them, to ourselves. And I've definitely done it myself. Like, it's always I struggle practicing what I preach um, a lot, I think. And yeah, I think I, like Oli, I need to, to kind of focus on that. It's got a sports psychologist. That's what we yeah, need. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. Yeah, this was actually interesting. I think I saw on Twitter, there was like a debate on um, so whether maybe, you know, sports psychologists, can they go through like mental health issues? Like are they, if they're going through mental health issues, can they actually practice? Is that good or not? And I saw some really interesting comments and, you know, we're, we're humans as well. So I think there is space for that, but yeah, it's, it's nice to think about it. But, uh, but yeah, um, thanks so much for kind of sharing some aspects of your book, but just going back to, to kind of your career. So London 2012. So we're really curious to know about your experience there. So what was it like? It was like nothing else you can imagine it was absolutely wild just i mean i'm from london i grew up and spent my whole life up until that point in london except for a few years at uni in brighton but i mean the whole city the whole country 
for for years before that was focused on the Olympics and that it was coming and then to be a part of it and to be in the British team at that time, my first Olympics and the home games, home city games. I mean, I really think that, I mean, an Olympics is a special experience for an athlete, but a home games is like, is it, is that kind of multiplied? Um, so we just had the incredible, these incredible opportunities. We would went out for dinner after our competition one night to like a Gordon Ramsay restaurant that was laid on for us and on the tube, people were coming and thanking us no idea who we were the fencing team no one had any idea but just kind of really heartfelt letting us know how how much it meant to them to to watch these olympics um and in the competition itself like from fencing we we're used to competing in dark sports halls in the suburbs of cities around and then we were in this venue of 4000 people where a large number of my friends and family were there in the stands and supporting me and I just that's the other probably the high the highlight of my entire sporting career was just walking out onto the piste it's called a piste in fencing the strip for the first for my first fight in that team event and I'm feeling my heart basically thumping through my chest and just so excited and I, I performed really well again this was down to some of the skill the mental skills I'd worked with that I was I performed with an absolutely clear head but with my heart just about to burst through my chest so um, it's just an incredible experience all around we got this open top bus tour like the Premier League winners get in front of mm -hmm. two million people in Europe in in sorry in, in London and yeah you can't you can't beat it it's such a unique kind of dream of an experience what were some of the main takeaways you took from that uh, that you took into the next Olympics that you went to? Well, I mean, it's such an overwhelming experience that you often find, they often kind of research is that athletes perform far better in their second or third games, just not just because they're more mature athletes, but because they've been through that experience before. They've, mm -hmm. It's not new to them, and there's so much that's new about it. Um, so in Rio, I was just far more kind of ready for it and aware. I think actually we, we, Team GB did a great job of preparing athletes for, for an Olympics. So we, I mean, just as an example, I went on a study tour to the Beijing Olympics with a group of young athletes who are kind of potentials. That's something that Team GB does that I think very few other Olympic teams do. I think we are probably amongst one of the top top one or two best prepared Olympic teams in the world. And that's kind of one example. So I visited the Olympic village. I visited the holding camp in Macau and saw my event. So I really got an experience then. And then in London, we just had really great kind of preparation for it. So it, it was like nothing else I'd ever done, but not so overwhelming that it kind of distracted me. Um, I don't know what else I took from it. <laughs> uh, I took a lot of heart from the fact, from the, from the performance that I gave that day in, in London that I could perform with kind of clarity and some freedom, even in, this, in the midst of that weird and quite wonderful dream-like existence. Mm. Yeah. So Rio, what was, what was that kind of like? So we, we've actually had a, a, couple of, a couple of athletes on that 
claimed that Rio was kind of hectic in a sense, uh, in terms of organization, etc. But what was your kind of experience with it? Yeah, again, the GB team, they like went into the village weeks before, sorted everything out. So there were none of the issues that some of the other teams had with their buildings. Mm -hmm. They just took care of they, they took care of us to an incredible level. Um, so I didn't I didn't get much experience of like hecticness, chaos. Mm. It was a bit a bit different to London, a little bit more disorganized, but mm. no, it was it was fairly fairly equatable and still just a an incredible experience. Um I was there a little bit for a little bit of a shorter time. We had an amazing holding camp outside of the Olympic village where we would go and train and you could spend like the afternoon and get out of it a little bit. Had a chat with Andy Murray one day at the pool in the holding camp. So I had some, some cool experiences like in Rio as well. Um, it felt a bit different. It just does feel different being your second games and um, yeah, being ready for it a bit more. I read in an article that you kind of talked about, you know, the, the Olympic system and how it's kind of organized. I was curious to, to kind of dig a bit deeper on that. So what do you think needs to potential, potentially change in the kind of Olympics in the system? Do you think future Olympics should continue to build, you know, all these infrastructures in different cities? And, you know, what do you kind of think? And I, I think it's quite interesting because what's happening in, in Beijing right now with you know all the all the news about you know the artificial snow and human know, rights issues in China. You know, exactly. Just just tell us more about your kind of thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, from the, the starting point is that the Olympics, especially sport generally, has this incredibly kind of lofty value proposition of being just a brilliant thing for society. And the Olympics has these kind of values around harmony and unity and dignity for the human species like the, the, the olympic charter is incredible in its description of what it what it aims to be for the world and then you see on the ground what actually happens around pretty much every olympics now every modern olympics for the last 40 years at least um with massive overspending building huge kind of these huge infrastructure projects um, corruption in lots of the in lots of countries, kind of public money flowing into private hands, um, the effect on the environment, all of this. And I, I did like in Athens, where all of this, all these these stadiums were just left abandoned afterwards. They did nothing. Basically, the host nation, the host city suffers all the consequences. People being displaced. There's just so many of these kind of negative side effects, like really horrifically negative. That, that, that contradict so blatantly with the the values of an Olympics and of sport. And I think that we just, we it's not acceptable really. I think we can't, if it had to continue like this, I don't, I, I don't think we should have it, but I don't think it has to continue like this. I think there's, there's just better models that we could choose. Like this is, this is the big business model where the IOC gets to kind of, to see this global event just, burst up in various countries and kind of have their whole fresh new stadiums in every place. And, but really if we were doing it sustainably and, and ethically, then you would use the infrastructure that's there. You might even have a, a single location, for instance, in Greece, going back to the origins where the Olympics are held every four years. And then you could use those kind of those stadiums for other sporting events for the rest of the time. 
Um, there's just there's lots of options, or you have you rotated around a, a city in each continent that is actually capable. You split split it up so it like a bit like a World Cup or a European Championships, which is in multiple cities. Um, there are there are things we could do, and yeah, it might not be exactly the same as the Olympics we we've come to know, but it's yeah, we it's just not acceptable in its current form. And this yeah, the idea of I mean, same as the World Cup being Qatar. Yeah. it's just it's horrific to see it's not i mean fifa you can't expect anything more of probably <laughs> not the ioc either but but really the ioc has this olympic charter that they claim to represent and they really they don't at the moment when did you kind of have this realization was it during rio for example or even before that or because it's interesting as an athlete you're you know you're seeing this uh, you're living it yourself so yeah it's, it's interesting yeah, well, it came. <laughs> I was very much in the bubble of kind of Olympics are brilliant. Like from my childhood, it's just mm. everything's great. Until a conversation with my wife, who doesn't really care about sports at all, and just kind of one sentence, throwaway sentence, I think it was just like, wow, the Olympics are just rubbish. They shouldn't happen. It helped me kind of, we, we talked a bit more about it, but it, then I kind of looked into it a bit more critically and realized that actually there is, she has a really good point it probably shouldn't happen in its current form. And then I wrote that, that article for the guardian about it. And, and I, my point was that as athletes, we're the ones kind of at the center of it and we should speak up for this or, or any issues that we, that we care about, especially within sport. Mm, no, thanks so much for sharing that. I think you should definitely clip that up and hopefully <laughs> have some sort of uh, impact with it. Um, just going back to your journey, obviously, um, after Rio, you retired in 2016. Was it difficult for you to do that? Uh, what was the transition like um, through retirement? No, it wasn't difficult because I'd, I'd had my two years out after the London Olympics. Yeah. And then I came back. I was living in Copenhagen by then. And I came back to the, to the British team with this kind of clear project in mind. I've got two years to Rio. Let's try and qualify this team. And that would be it. So I knew for those two years that I was... I was going to be done after Rio. So a good preparation time. It was on my own terms. And then I'd already, I'd started setting up kind of what was to come next. So by 2015, I was working in, in a fencing club here in Copenhagen, also as a kind of performance director role. Um, so I had this other kind of side to my life already going. And so I just, yeah, I was, I was well prepared, but that was because I, if, if, I, if something had happened pre-London, if I'd kind of got injured and or if London hadn't gone my way, it would have been a big, a big difference. It would have been a struggle because I, I wasn't nearly as prepared. I just kind of got, I got a bit lucky, I guess, that I had the time and it went my way that I could, I could kind of play it out for those two years. The Olympics went, it got to the Olympics, that went well, and then I had a plan in place. Do you think those little breaks that you had during your career that might help you in that transition? Because obviously some athletes, you know, just for 15 years, nonstop, you know, competing. For what, you, was your, little, yeah. Yeah. what was your reasoning for the break as well? But different reasons each time. I mean, the first break for the for university, I mean, there wasn't quite an outlook on being a professional athlete. So I was doing quite well, but I just realized I just wanted to, focus on what I was doing there and then be a bit more present. It mm. would have just kind of radically altered my experience of university if I was still traveling back to London to 
train and going away every other weekend. So that was that decision. And then after London, the reason was because it was such a stressful year leading up to the Olympics. I, I needed a solid break. And I did some things to, yeah, to reconnect with other parts of myself. So that's where it helped me, that kind of showed me. I did a, I booked a, a course, a four-month course in guiding outdoor adventure sports in Canada. And I was thinking I, I could be a, an outdoor adventure guide. And I love nature and I love those, I love sports like that. So that was exploring that side of my uh, kind of my personality. Um, and at least just that whole year, just reconnected with, yeah, there's, there's far more to me than just an athlete. So definitely it helps. So you can know that, but if you never give that, give space to that side of yourself, then it's not, you're not confident in that fact. I think that's why your transition out of sport was so easy because you know, I've done a lot of like research during my master's around transitions, you know, having, you know, backup plans and having a higher educational status, things like that really helps a positive transition. And then things like if you haven't got that, it leads to very negative transitions and a lot of psychological distress. So for anyone listening, you know, especially young athletes, start looking at, you know, opening your identity to things that you enjoy outside of just your sport. For sure. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you took on the role as a performance director. So for our listeners, do you think you could shed light on what a performance director kind of does? What kind of responsibilities do you have? Yeah, basically you're responsible for all national team activities. So I would kind of plan and run training camps for our junior athletes and our senior athletes. Um, I'd be the kind of the head of the delegation at European and World Championships at junior and senior level. Uh, I'd run development kind of programs for the coaches. Uh, A lot lot of the work kind of happens through the coaches and the clubs rather than direct with the athletes, but with our, we had this group of about nine elite level kind of funded athletes and them, those I'd have closer connection with and do video analysis with or, or developmental kind of talks with. Um, just kind of overseeing the whole system, which physical trainers we bring in when we do those psych, psych work, what kind of work they do. It's a wonderful job, actually. It was, um, it's incredibly varied and you get your fingers into all of the pies and get to have a real kind of say on on the direction of, of the whole federation and kind of all the talent and elite work. So it's it's a lot of responsibility and, um, and I, I just I thoroughly enjoyed it. It seems like you have to have knowledge of like different areas of performance. So like, you know, like you said, the psychology, the kind of physiological part. So yeah, it's, yeah, that sounds like a really cool role to be honest. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In terms of your book. So for our listeners, obviously you've, uh, you've covered it a little bit already, but if you want to sort of give uh, like an overview of what it consists of um, and you know, what, what was the main driver for you writing this book? You know, what was that? Yeah, well, something we haven't covered yet was at the same time as I retired from in Rio and became performance director, I also uh, joined this kind of fairly young nonprofit called the True Athlete Project. And that project I joined as the director of a mentoring program. And we match elite Olympic level athletes with young athletes and they work together for a year quite intensely and we have a curriculum that they work through as well as long, alongside kind of this classic big brother big sister mentoring and the curriculum is a really holistic program so it's around kind of 
themes of performance, but also identity values, mindfulness, community responsibility, even nature um, is one of the themes. And we have this kind of quite special philosophy where the mission is to create a more compassionate culture of sport and to just have participants at all levels have a better experience. So perform better, stay longer, kind of stay involved when they leave on the other end. Um, so all these kind of incredible potential outcomes of sport just living up to its value proposition more. And yeah, so I wrote this book as a kind of manifesto. This is our philosophy. This is what we believe about athlete development and what sport can be. And uh, it was published last year in August. And it's, a, it's called Becoming a True Athlete. And the subtitle is A Practical Philosophy for Flourishing Through Sport. So it, it sets out what we believe yeah, the power of sport really could be in for individuals and for society but also how it's not living up to that in so many ways and then from there kind of setting out these four athlete virtues <coughs> which are integrity compassion awareness and responsibility and these are the things that we think are integral to kind of having a thriving experience of sport and performing well, certainly having an impact on performance, but are often kind of missed out or just kind of not included in traditional sport culture. And then there's a section on kind of the mental, emotional strategies and tools that can underpin these values. So um, kind of the, how you would work on your compassionate voice or on mindfulness and gratitude. Um, there's a section on love versus fear and I run a workshop, for example, with tap on, on love and compassion in performance sport. Um, so that, yeah, that book is really kind of just a deep dive into what, what this organization is all about. And we have this unique approach to sport that is, it's a, yeah, it's attracting more and more people to it. People are seeing that there's another way of doing it. It doesn't all have to be brutal and critical and like just suffering at the high end yeah you have to suffer in kind of a physical way to push your body in lots of ways but the environments don't have to suffer and your your psyche your emotion your emotional kind of self doesn't have to suffer through it so um, this is a different way of of seeing sport and it's it's aimed at, at athletes and and coaches who are interested in how how you can support athletes like that yeah definitely we'll, we'll definitely signpost to our audience to to that book it really does sound fantastic and uh yeah we're, we're definitely really excited to you know read more about it and uh i was kind of curious as well so your role in tap right now so what does it kind of involve what are you kind of responsible for right now yeah so i'm still the director of the mentoring program yeah. uh, mentoring programs because we've got a, we've got more than one now and our, our global program we've just started up we have 72 athletes across 10 countries and 34 different sports and they kind of go through as a cohort we do these trainings we they go through a mindfulness course for six weeks we run workshops and kind of mentoring skills for the mentors and yeah other workshops for the whole group so there's that's the kind of program for a full year for this group um, we have other programs in TAP that I'm also kind of I'm involved with. Uh, we do we do kind of partnerships with NGBs, uh, working. We run internal mentoring programs. We work with their coaches. We do delivery in in training camps. 
work with their leaders, kind of whole organizational things. We also do kind of programs with community sports clubs and schools. Uh, we run a, a yeah, mindfulness course for, for anyone who, who wants to sign up for it. So we kind of have programs at all levels and I'm involved in, in some of them, but yeah, the, the most part it's kind of leading these, these mentoring programs that have become a bit of a bit like our flagship program. It's where we can really, we have people really kind of closely involved for a full year, young and experienced athletes, and we can really kind of bring them through our whole, our whole approach and bring them closely on board. So it's just been a, an absolute pleasure to, to meet all these people who are coming to this to this approach and buying in and then just uh and then thriving in these courses and it's it's all about supporting these younger athletes to have a better experience than than we did yeah 100%. in terms of that and in terms of you as a person what are sort of your future like goals and ambitions now moving forward from from, from this point yeah it's a good timely question because i've just left my job in danish fencing and i've taking up a part-time role in the Triathlete Project because we've, we've grown enough to, to allow some, I've been volunteer for the last five years in that role. Uh, now I've, I'll have a part-time position and for the other part, I'll be doing some kind of consultancy and uh, maybe some, some kind of performance coaching as well. But uh, it's a bit nerve-wracking, but it's also quite exciting. I'm, I'm not sure where that's going to lead, but I see all sorts of opportunities for taking this kind of approach into the business world and beyond in the sporting world and just kind of sharing some of these lessons about what is how do you achieve performance in a much healthier much more evidence-based approach because really the traditional way we've done it until now is not the best way it's not what our best kind of understanding of psychology and philosophy really tells us is the way to get the most out of people. So that's what I've been experiencing over this of my kind of career as an athlete and a performance director. And I kind of I'm keen to get that message a bit further out now. Sounds like super exciting. You've got a, a lot of things going on in your life that obviously <laughs> you're just at the start as well. So I bet it's really exciting. We're sort of in a similar position in terms of what we're trying to build. So you know, well, let's see how we grow and uh, good luck to all of us. <laughs> nice uh, but yeah in terms of like all the questions that we had for you they were all the questions we had so thanks uh so much for coming on um we really appreciate it it's been a really good podcast um all the links to your socials and that will be in the description to your book to anything you're associated with we'll put in for you um is there nice. anything you want to sort of shout out or say no i think we covered some some good stuff the key messages for sure um, who, who who do you find your your listeners are? Are they athletes or are they like psychs like you guys? Or then we have a sort of a mixture. Excellent. Yeah, mm-hmm. we did some market research like not long ago, and I think it's a lot of younger athletes. We we, we have a lot of coaches that listen to us because we often have coaches who come on um, and talk about their philosophies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of psychs do listen because we've done a lot of work with. Um, the BPS and bases. Uh, so we've got that connection there. So a lot of them listen to us through that. Um, so really a, a wide range of athletes, coaches and sports likes. Cool. Even day to day people as well. Um, like I know a lot of my friends like just tune in and it's so surprising when they say, Oh yeah, I listened to this podcast. And I was like, yeah. that's, uh, that's crazy. <laughs> cool. So yeah. rewarding. Nice. Yeah. 
So yeah, um, okay. thanks so much. Thanks so much for coming on and chatting with us. Yeah. Um, when do you think you'll put it out? This one. Um, so it won't be next week. It'll be the week after. Week after, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, yeah. So very soon, but you'll you'll be notified. We'll we'll probably put everything on social media, so your phone will be uh, pinging on the on the <laughs> day we release it. I'm sure, but, uh, but yeah. yeah, nice. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. Cheers, well guys. I hope to we'll stay in touch. Maybe there's more Definitely. to do later in in our 100%. career paths. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you could please share it with your friends or someone you would feel would benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe, comment down below any questions or guests you'd like us to get on in the future. Also, go follow us on Twitter, Instagram. Links will be in the description of the YouTube video or find us at Master in the Mind podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next one.